0: You can find more information, photos, and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Arthur Parkinson, and Sarah Raven. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how our gardens are erasuses for birds and bees, and also about how to grow courgettes.
1: So they're both incredibly relevant to right now, aren't they, Arthur? Because it's peak sowing moment. So as we're sowing seeds and planting plants in the spring, I'm always, and I know you are, thinking about what role that plant will have in the garden, not just to look beautiful, But also, does it help another plant out or does it help the bees and the birds? And for me, the longer I garden, just the more important that sort of multifaceted thing in a plant is and how it sort of its context in the world, it's not just to deliver incredible pleasure to us, which is very, very important and what gardens are, of course, primarily for in a way. But also, do they have a bigger wider role.
0: Yeah I I couldn't agree more.
1: Tell me your maybe like your five favourite plants for bees and butterflies and then we can move on to birds.
0: I mean I think I should I should say that the thing the thing that I find irritating as someone who like you loves wildlife in the garden is that wildlife gardening's kind of been made to become almost like a a thing that's separate from normal gardening and what I really think that what we try to do on a on a daily basis really is try and just bring the two together. It's about bringing glamour and wildlife together. And if you can do that, I do think you end up with Eden, what Eden should be yeah, in, yeah. in a garden. You know, we, we're we always looking at, I think me and you both find the wildflower meadow our biggest source of inspiration, particularly when we're thinking about planting style and, and the way plants should be together. But, you know, if if you miss the heartbeat that is the bees and the butterflies and the birds, we're we're kind of missing the the real status quo of what a garden should be. So what I hope that me and you do is not say, oh, your garden's got to be a load of brambles and you've got to rewild it to the point where you can't get to the door. Mm -hmm. It's simply about choosing plants that give both a visual gorgeousness and a a living gorgeousness. Because, you know, if you choose to grow a red millet and a single dahlia, you'll get a goldfinch, hopefully, or a house sparrow and a, a butterfly on the single dahlia and a bee, And for me, that's almost giving a plant a sort of Gucci Mm. piece of jewellery in a way. When I look out the window and I see that, I do find a huge appetite to continue gardening. Um, So going back to the top things that I grow for wildlife, but also the top five things that I grow really for garden glamour. It's not just growing them for wildlife. Increasingly, me and you love foliage in, in the garden and in the vase and I think we'd both agree that the easiest foliage to grow are the, the annual grasses, the panicums in yeah. particular. One being a plant that me and you both saw in a in a game crop at first called red millet. Yeah, And millets, if you take a walk in the countryside, um, particularly in Oxfordshire and that kind of place, you'll see whole avenues of red millet planted as a set aside crop for game birds. Um, but you'll also notice that as well as game birds, there'll normally be flocks of goldfinches and greenfinches, And it's the most bumper, powerful plant to encourage these birds into the garden. Mm. And I am the biggest snob when it comes to bird feeders. Um, A lot of them to me look like they belong on the moon. So I'd far rather have, you know, a good 15 lovely big plants of millet amongst my dailies and cosmos than I would a bird feeder.
1: Mm. I couldn't agree more.
0: And the other grass that me and you both love is um, panicum, Elegance Sparkling Fountain. Hope I've got the name right. Yeah, you have. I can never remember. <laughs> um, and that is. It used to is, be called um,
1: Frosted Explosion. Yes.
0: That's why I get confused. I keep changing the name. Yeah. Um, but that's the most tiny, annoying little seed for me. And you can't cover it over. Always sow it into a seed tray, but don't cover it over. It needs the daylight to germinate. And um, it just looks like a little grass seedling at first. But within, you know, two months of planting it out, you get the most gorgeous firework sparkler of a seed head and I, mm. I'd have that in every single pot mm. and I pick it I spray it gold for Christmas but I'm picking it all through the the summer and storing it because hung up it's the best bird feeder in the world and my chickens like it as well a lot
1: yeah I mean, I remember very well getting a lesson from a biodiversity expert and it's just so easy to think that your garden to be good for wildlife has to be a sort of romping jungle Mm -hmm. of brambles and nettles well nettles are of course very important because they're a a food plant for the caterpillar of a lot of our butterflies but you can have a a little clump under a hedge and keep it contained it doesn't need to take over the whole place but I I remember them saying to me that there were just rules that you just need to have at the forefront of your mind for butterflies and bees will come on to birds and the first if you can see the center of the flower probably there are still nectaries in there and so those are the little tubes that have the nectar, which of course are what the, are the bees and the butterflies are after. And if you can see yellow dust like saffron at the centre of the flower, there's going to be pollen in there. So what you don't want are the fully doubles. And so where that's, you've, you've got a fully double flower, you can't see either of those central bits of the flower. What's happened is the nectaries have been bred to be secondary petals called petaloids. And so there are no nectaries and there are no anthers and filaments. So there's no, no forage for the bees. So that's the sort of incredibly simple thing, which is if it's a fully double flower, it's basically not going to have anything. But And I was really so incredibly overjoyed when I saw the anemone flower dahlias. In fact, they look like they're sort of double because they've got that strange, almost like a sort of sea urchin in the middle of the flower, like or, or an anemone in the middle of the flower in a way. But actually, as you have said in a previous podcast, Blue Bayou is the most visited by butterflies of any plant that we have in the garden here. And that's the other thing is just sit and watch a plant. And if you've got bees and butterflies visiting, it's almost certainly they're not visiting to an empty bar. They're finding something in there. And, and the other thing that he said to me is, think also of how much forage there is on a flower. So, for instance, with a foxglove, he described it to me like a high rise of cafes for bees and Mm -hmm. butterflies because it's just like it's stack upon stack upon stack, one on top of another of those lovely thimble flowers. And each of those is completely stuffed, full of pollen and nectar. And they just move all the way up the stem and then you'll find them asleep (laughs) roosted in the top one because they've had such a massive feast and so that's the other thing is having that succession and then within your garden also concentrating on succession so having crocuses uh for february right through to lots of wildflowers ideally like cow parsley and the umbellifers into april and may and then um into all the single dahlias for the summer And then ivy, funnily enough, ivy flower is fantastic for September and October. And there's a wonderful Sussex Bee Laboratory down in Brighton, quite near me here, where they do lots of research and they watch the waggle dance of, in fact, those are of course honeybees, so they're domesticated bees. And by analysing the waggle dance and the angle in which they move their bodies within the hive, they can then because it's the way of communicating one of the bees to another, they can then actually track where they forage that day. And so they can see where what the best forage is, basically. And they've found, unfortunately, that, of course, rapeseed uh, flowers are actually mm. very good, but they're often sprayed with herbicides. So the bees will forage, but then, unfortunately, they will often die because they will be affected by what the crop has been... Sprayed with, but it's a very moving thing, and they did lots of research into what which were the best plants. And so the RHS actually uh, they did a whole research project into plants for pollinators, and they found things like the scabious, which of course we know is a brilliant plant for bees. Any of the thistles actually um, are, are really good. Lots of the salvias. I mean, there are just so many, aren't there?
0: Yeah, and I think herbs are just very, the best thing, you know, a garden full of marjoram and self-seeded oregano, borage, rosemary, all all the yeah. edible flowers quite often are fabulous. And, and also, I hate to admit this because I can't stand the things, hebees, um, oh, when they're in flower. Yes. I remember when you did that documentary about the bees, you had a scientist and he he put something over a, a hebe bush and they measured the nectar content, the sugar. Yes, yes. And I think the hebe flowers came out on top. So I, I have to admit, I was looking at hebes in the garden centre a few weeks ago thinking, mm. how, how can I like these? Because I know mm-hmm. when they're in flower, they're, they're lovely for the bees. And what could be more low maintenance, but I'm afraid I'm yet to bite the bullet on hebes.
1: And they have such a long flowering season, don't they, too, which is an important other aspect Anyway, you've linked very niftily. We'll come back to to more bees and butterflies, but just because you gave me a really good prompt there about edible flowers. And so it's linked brilliantly into courgettes, which is the edible plant that we're going to talk about in this program. And courgettes, of course, have those lovely edible flowers, which you can stuff. They don't taste very much, but you can stuff delicious things into them. And all you need to do is remove the stigma, which is in the middle of the flower and you can pick both the male flowers which don't have a courgette behind and the female flowers which have a mini courgette forming behind and I really one of my favorite things I spend a lot of time in Crete one of my favorite things there is that they combine the sweet and the sour with courgette flowers that they stuff with goat's cheese and thyme and pine nuts and they just put a teaspoon of that into a uh, courgette flour and then they just turn it and then they drop it into a very light batter and just just literally gently fry it for two minutes on either side and then you take it out and the key thing that makes it Cretan is that they then drizzle it with just a little bit of honey and you would think oh I'm not sure I want honey with a, a sort of starter but actually it's that brilliant thing of the tangy goat's cheese in contrast to the sweetness of the runny honey is just Brilliant with the with the lovely sharp brightness of the of the thyme leaves coming through. And if you've got a female courgette, you just want to slice very carefully up the length of the courgette with a sharp knife. And then when you drop it into the batter, it will then cook, it will coat even the inside a little bit, and also it'll cook through better. Otherwise, the flour. Cooks quickly and the courgettes not cook, but just by doing that longitudinal slice, just very carefully, almost right to the top where the flour is, but not quite, otherwise it'll fall apart. That's a really, really good tip that they showed me. And it's such a, a lovely dish. And why are we talking about courgettes now? Well, of course, it's time to sow them. So, Arthur, why don't you tell us how to sow courgettes?
0: Yes, um, they're quite big, flat seeds, so they're nice and easy. And I would always sow one or possibly a pair into a nine centimetre pot on the kitchen windowsill. Or if it was a really cold room, possibly I'd consider putting them in a little mini propagator because they are a seed that do like a bit of bottom heat to get going. They'll germinate quite quickly and the seedlings have a big pair of like baby elephant ears Mm. um, because they're related to pumpkins. I'm more familiar with growing pumpkins than courgettes. But they are sun lovers, so sowing them late in the in the growing season is ideal because at this time of year the nights are getting a bit longer and so they'll be able to go out into the garden within a few weeks once the frosts are properly out of the way they'll be able to go out. And they're very hungry. Uh, even as seedlings, they'll very quickly fill a nine centimetre pot. So if you sow a pear very quickly, that pear will want to have its own little pot. And normally I think it's best to plant them out in a nice one litre pot once they've got a good root ball each and tons of muck more more muck the better and some varieties can be allowed to grow horizontally but quite a few now can be grown vertically um like uh, the funny one that everyone goes on about that tromboncino that you like Sarah
1: yeah I love it It, it, it's um it's always the, the one in um September October time that I get lots of pictures sent to me as it's just one a child the mad vegetable competition in their local village Mm. show because they get huge and long and they literally do look like a trombone or possibly other things that are unmentionable. But um, they're they're certainly... And you get ones that are sort of curvy and like snakes. And actually, there's a lovely one, a lovely similar um, brother of that one, actually, uh, which is called the Serpent, which is an Italian variety. But they don't make quite such good eating, I would say. So in terms of eating... I always choose three different coloured varieties. So I go for Romanesco for a green, which is absolutely distinct because it has ribs all the way down the fruit. So the length of the fruit rather than going across, so down the length. And it's got a very nutty, quite, it's got a much more intense flavour than most courgettes. So that's always my number one choice. And then I would always grow a yellow and I tend to grow one called soleil or, or there are there are various mm. different yellows. But the one thing to know about the yellows is that you must eat them when they're small because they've got quite tough skin and that's because they've got some of the squash genetics in them. And so it, it, they're actually will form a ripening skin. But so you want to eat them as a baby or they get too seedy and the skin is tough And the final one I always grow is a variety called Bianca, which is actually a Cypriot courgette, which I love because it's not round, but it's quite bulbous and it's actually used in Cyprus for stuffing. And so what you would do with that is is you would literally just chop it in half, scrape out the seeds and then pack it with either some mints and perhaps some rice and lots and lots and lots of dried mint. It's the one time that I use dried mint when I'm stuffing sort of Greek uh, vegetables because it gives a sweetness which actually uh, fresh mint doesn't quite so much, and then you put them back in and, and whack them into a really hot oven. Anyway, that's a delicious thing to do with them too. But those three varieties, Romanesco, uh, Soleil, and Bianca, are absolutely my ones of, of choice. And as you say, loads of marks. So I make them almost like sort of little mounds in the garden, <laughs> and and then I'll dig a hole in that mound and pack it, pack it, pack it, pack it with uh, muck and then plant them just right in the top of the mound. And the good thing about that is that if if we have a wet summer, the water then runs down the side of the mound because otherwise sometimes you can get the fruit rotting off a little bit. And then the other thing is just pick, 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 pick. You do not want marrows, you want courgettes. And one of my cooking heroes is sadly no longer with us called Rose Gray, who was... Uh, the jewel head chef at the River Cafe with Ruthie Rogers. And I remember Rose coming here to do a demonstration and I picked her some courgettes, which I thought was small and very perfect and lovely. And I was very proud of them. And I took them in and she said, I'm not cooking those. (laughs) I was horrified. (laughs) And I said, oh, Rose, why not? And she said, they're twice too big. And she then got her thumb and she said she would never cook a courgette that was longer from the base of her thumb, so where at the sort of end of the bulbous bit, where your wrist is really, to the tip of her thumb. And and I said, well, it's like infanticide. And she said, yes, courgettes you eat as babies. And she's right, because they're they're just nutty and dense. And really, honestly, they slightly remind me of an artichoke heart when they're picked at that size, which is obviously one of the garden delicacies of the world, really. And she is completely right. As Mm. soon as, you know, you can't buy courgettes like that there was those huge long things that look like a cucumber and they're full of seeds and they're all watery. And that's what puts people off courgettes because they, they just don't know how delicious they can be, but they can be utterly wonderful. And I just want to give one other really fabulous recipe that when we've got quite a glut of courgettes, and of course you do get that because you've got to keep picking them. You've got to keep picking the babies to get more babies. (laughs) And what I do is I just literally cut up a leek and an onion and maybe some chard. And then I just put the courgettes through a slicer or I slice them myself and I sweat the whole thing off together in some olive oil uh, just for about 10 minutes just to soften it. And then I get some filou pastry and I oil between each sheet and then I just put them all into a baking tray with a little bit of uncooked rice. In the right at the bottom. Uh, so sheet of filo pastry oiled between it, sheet another oiled between it, because that's what makes it crunchy. Then you put a, just literally half a handful of uncooked rice in the base. And the brilliant thing about that rice is it absorbs all the liquid of the vegetables. So it doesn't make the pastry base soggy. And then I just Pile in all those vegetables crumble over lots of delicious feta and then fold the pastry sheets back over in a sort of crumpled lovely sort of swathy uh, almost like material again always oiling between the sheets and then put it in a really hot oven for about 20 minutes absolutely delicious crunchy tangy salty from the feta and just it's the best way of using sort of July August gluts of vegetables So enough on courgettes, I'd say. Um, Hopefully we've convinced everyone to grow some, but not too many. Got to keep on top of picking them. But the last thing we want to talk about today is gardening for birds. Not not necessarily bees, which we've talked about, but specifically for birds. So Arthur, tell me everything you can about why, what, how you garden for birds.
0: Well, the biggest thing I think for us town gardeners is to try and give cover back to birds because during my lifetime I've really witnessed particularly in my hometown a complete massacre of hedges in gardens and I remember being little and both my grandparents gardens being full of sparrows and blackbirds because both sides had lovely hawthorn or privet hedges so um, I think the biggest thing if you've bought a new build house is to plant a hawthorn hedge you know at the base of your fence panels you know just do that and within 3 years you'll have a hedge that's big enough to be a boundary so that's probably my biggest tip and also planting things like crab apples you know if you really if you really just want to plant things and forget about them you know look at the small trees for gardens and hedging plants and give give the birds cover back because that's the biggest thing i think that they're missing in in urban spaces i mean the difference between a country garden and a town garden couldn't be more different because there are less hedges. And I think for wildlife that's the biggest threat that they've faced universally, it's it's the hedge. So my biggest tip would be bring back the hedge if you can.
1: And then plant seed now for yeah. things like panicum that the, the millet that Arthur described. And then, of course, sunflowers. We didn't mention sunflowers, did we? Well, we mm. all know.
0: No, we didn't. We should have done. So
1: that, you know, we all know if we buy wild bird food, it's got lots of sunflowers in it. And you can grow sunflowers and then they just forage from them. And it's the most lovely sight seeing that is just particularly the finches just, just really, really love them. And I think the thing that's convinced me totally, I mean, I didn't really need convincing But um, one of the gardeners here called Anita has a real passion for garden birds and is very, very knowledgeable. She recognises all the different bird songs and she's teaching me about it. But she, when she started here three or four years ago, she started really consciously feeding the birds and topping up all our bird feeders here, which I know we've said we're not so sure about, it's nicer to grow stuff, but we actually do both. And on a Friday before she goes home for the weekend, she tops up all the bird feeders. In the right seasons of of the year, which of course is particularly spring because they're feeding their young or they're producing their young. And what I've really noticed since she started is that our whole problem with aphids, and so whether it's green fly or uh, the lupin aphid, you know, that weird huge turquoise one, or even whitefly on our brassicas and all those little uh, pesty little f- flies, we, we just don't get nearly the same mm. degree of problem that we used to get. And the other thing, which I know everyone's ears are going to prick up, is that I am absolutely convinced our slugs and snail population has just plummeted, which can only be a good thing. And then you sit quietly in the garden and you hear this, and, of course, that is a thrush breaking open a snail shell and eating the snail inside it. And I know that's a bit mean on the poor snail, but I'm not going to get into sna- snail-saving <laughs> activities because, of course, in a garden, slugs and snails are a bit of a pest, but I would never, ever use slug pellets. And there's a, a very good research really showing that the ones that include metaldehyde are not good for garden birds, and, uh, and so you can actually control them in a different way, which is just sympathetic to wildlife, and yet has exactly the same effect. So for me, that's a kind of win-win situation. Mm. And, and so if, if you were to, again, I'm afraid I'm going to do the desert island uh, thing, if you were to pick yes. three plants for wildlife, whether it be birds or bees or butterflies, would you pick three and then I'll pick three?
0: Well, I've, I've I've always had, I think I've put in my book, if I ever get someone who's going to fund me to do a Chelsea Flower Show garden, I will be very daring and do a whole patch of nettles in a cattle trough, very ornately staked. And I'm afraid I would have to take the nettles because I love butterflies and mm. um, without the nettles, there'd be no caterpillars. You know, unfortunately... You do have to have the larval food for these beautiful things that, you know, mm. you can't have one without the other. Mm. Um, and my friend Mark, who introduced me to nettle soup, you know, so on the desert island, I'm sure I'd be lovely and thin on nettle soup for summer. Um, <laughs> so you could always use that for it. Um, and sticking with butterflies, I've always loved Budliers And um, I was so pleased that that Josie planted, was it buddleia buzz magenta last year in the oast garden in your lovely big pots? Yeah. And honestly, these, these budliers they fl- start flowering in end of June, which is when all the bigger budliers start to flower. But these budliers carry on. If you deadhead them, they carry on right into October. And mm. so it was so lovely on an autumn day, seeing this cloud of red admirals and peacock butterflies on these budliers, And, you know, once you've planted them, you just prune them at this time of year, you know, early spring, and you've got them for years. So, you know, there's no faffing about with them. They're totally hardy happy in a pot, um, so budley a buzz, I think everyone should have one of those in their garden. And for birds, um, the millets, all of the annual millets. And mm. if you're on sandy soil, um, I know the panicum self-seeds itself a lot at Perch Hill, doesn't it? So, mm. you know, if, if you just leave the seed heads, they'll come back year after year or grow them every year and have them in, in your pots as part of the, the pot recipe.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, mine, again, I'm afraid I'd have to say Panicum frosted explosion. Um, And actually, to be honest, red millet, so Panicum Mm violaceum, And that's because when I come out of my office into the dahlia garden, I have to confess that I do grow quite a lot of double dahlias because I love them for flower arranging. But what I always make sure that I don't just grow doubles, I have singles too, but also... I put red millet all the way through them and I open my office door to walk through the dahlia garden. And I swear that, in sort of uh, by the time the, the millet's starting to ripen in August and September, it's like I'm living in a wild aviary. It's absolutely extraordinary. The whole place is completely a flutter with particularly goldfinches, but as you say, sparrows and robins on the ground and thrushes and blackbirds all eating it. So I, I'd have to say the millets. I would definitely have to say one of the single dahlias probably totally tangerine or blue bayou, particularly for the butterflies. And then finally, I would have to say one of those wonderful sunflowers, like pro-cut plum for the sunflower mm. seed for the birds. So those would be mine. But Beautiful. the main thing for all of us to concentrate on is your garden can be like a mini nature reserve without it being a jungle of weeds. And and that's the thing is it doesn't have to be just return to nature. It can be, as Arthur says, glamorous, floriferous, colourful, and have this extra cast of beautiful insect and bird life to give it that extra kind of like a theatre with its actors. That's what it means to me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. Next week, we're going to be talking about scented narcissus, lovely, luscious, stephanotis smelling narcissus, and the plant that I'm cropping more than anything right now, which is purple-sprouting broccoli.
0: You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at siroven.com.